Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 71, 32, and 30. Tutmose III celebrates a major milestone, and his people work hard to complete an impressive monument. Finally, we encounter what may be one of the earliest examples ever of baseball. This episode is brought to you by Katriana Anderson, Christoph Mandy, and Claire Baldwin. Thank you for your support and your feedback, guys. I hope it continues to meet your expectations. At the end of episode 70, our story paused in regnal year 33 of Tadmose III. Today, we have to rewind slightly. This episode takes place in regnal year 30, 1465 BCE. It is a cool pre-dawn morning in December. We are gathered in the city of Thebes. The sky is dark, but lightening into pink as the sun approaches the horizon. The air is cold, and this close to the river Nile, there is a damp dew on the ground. You and I have come to a courtyard in the great enclosure of the Karnak Temple. In a space set aside specifically for this occasion, a throng of well-dressed Egyptians have gathered. They are men and women, priests, priestesses, officials, nobles, and courtiers. Their clothes are pristine, white, folded linen. Their bodies are freshly cleaned for the occasion. Their jewellery glints in the light of flame torches. Above the throng, the skyline is dominated by the towering edifices of Karnak Temple. Huge sandstone pylons, towering obelisks, and formidable walls enclosing sanctuaries that have stood for decades, even centuries. It is a formidable scene. The city seems to sleep under the gaze of these monuments. We stand before a particularly impressive edifice, a huge rectangular temple of sandstone. It is tall and broad, and inside, a forest of columns dominates a cavernous hall. This is a truly royal edifice. It is the reason that we are here. The gloomy pre-dawn air begins to hum with the sound of music. The courtyard, filled with the priests and priestesses, the nobles and the officials, starts to stir into life. The ritual is beginning. Emerging from the gloom of Karnak's many halls and sanctuaries, a procession of priests comes forth. Some of them are dressed in bizarre costumes, leopard skins, masks designed like falcons or ibises. The musicians, female, strike a rhythm with their sistrums and their castanets. The air thickens with the smoke of burning incense. As the haze settles over the throng and over you, the object of these rituals finally emerges from the depths. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Tutmose III, has come forth on the occasion of his first Jubilee festival. Today, we begin the mighty Sed Festival, a grand and costly exercise in royal splendor, ritual worship, and symbolic tasks. This is going to be a grand occasion. The courtiers and nobles part, allowing the procession to move slowly through the courtyard. The king follows the priests. They are proceeding towards that towering royal edifice, the Grand Hall, which dominates the courtyard. This hall is a monument that Tutmose's artisans have spent seven years perfecting until this moment. 
it is a wonder of the royal building program and a great achievement in its own right. Today, we call this monument the Festival Hall. To the Egyptians, it is known as the Ark Menu. The Ark Menu Men Keperei, or Effective Are the Monuments of Tutmos III, was built at Karnak Temple. It was placed east of the main sanctuaries, in its own space. It was connected to the larger temples by doorways, but Tutmos clearly intended this to be its own separate space. This was his monument after all, and he wanted it to be special. Welcome to the Festival Hall of the King. Before the rituals themselves could begin, and the king could enter his festival hall, he first had to be purified. The king appeared before the courtiers and the throng, dressed very simply, bare chest, short kilt, and little else. Priests, called the Wab'u, or purified ones, now came forth to wash Tutmose's body, to shave his body hair, and rub him down with incense and oils. Doing this purified the king of any dirt and made it appropriate for the king to enter the great divine space. Once he was purified, the king could begin the formal rituals. A priest came forward, took Tutmos by the hand, and led him into the interior of the festival hall. Now the king had an important symbolic act to complete. This was the inscribing and renewing of his names, the names he bore as a ruler, Doing this would revitalize his power and renew his right to rule. Tutmos, standing in the sanctuary of the festival hall, now stood at the altar. A priest and a priestess stepped forward. The priest was dressed as Thoth, scribe of the divine council. The priestess was dressed as the goddess Seshat, the female scribe who took records like Thoth. In a recent mini-episode, I referred to Seshat as a goddess of time, but this was an error. Seshat's role as a time goddess is only correct when associated with royal buildings. She was associated with the foundation rituals and the building materials, and so helped them to endure for eternity. But to refer to her simply as time is a bit of a mistake. Mea culpa, I do apologize. Thoth and Seshat came forth to record Tutmose's name. This was carved on a wooden staff, Thoth's, and a block of stone, Seshat's, and, in the temple of Heliopolis in the north, on the leaves of a tree. Again, this was something that was done at the king's initial coronation, but it had to be repeated for the said festival. It helped to renew the power of his name, and preserve it for posterity in the annals of Egypt's kings. Tutmos paid unusual attention to the longevity and history of the Egyptian royal line. In fact, he set aside a special section of his festival hall for the very purpose of honouring this concept. In the northwest corner of the festival hall, there is a special hallway that's set aside from the main sanctuary. This little side area is called the Hall of the Ancestors. The Hall of the Ancestors is an uncommon but wonderful occurrence. It is a long hall decorated with in order, a long list of the kings of Egypt that had ruled before Tutmos III. In other words, it's a complete record of the kings up to that point. It is the closest the Egyptians ever come to doing a history of Egypt since the earliest times, a full-scale royal record of the royal ancestors, who connected with Tutmos III and legitimized his entire reign. One thing that makes these kinds of rooms interesting is the fact that the king lists often omit 
certain kings whom we know to have existed. In other words, the Egyptians were selective, and this gives Egyptologists a glimpse at what kinds of rulers the Egyptians sometimes considered illegitimate in the traditional sense. For example, Tutmose's king list does not include Hatshepsut, but that's a story for another day. There is some suggestion that the early phases of the said festival also included a ritual re-coronation of the king, but I covered those in a recent mini-episode where I dealt directly with the inauguration and coronation of a ruling monarch, so for the details of what went on in that kind of ceremony, I suggest you look at that mini-episode. The said festival itself was dedicated entirely to renewing the powers of the king. Some of the acts were basically reenactments of his original coronation, but there was plenty that was unique to the said festival and could only be done in this particular context. It's that stuff that I want to focus on. Many of the rituals and acts in this particular festival might be termed tests of the king's physical skill and endurance. For this reason, and in honour of one of my favourite TV specials, I'm going to refer to this as the feats of strength. You, you can't go! Who's going to do the feats of strength? How about George? Good thinking, Cougar. Until you pin me, George, Festivus is not over. Oh, please, somebody stop this. Let's rumble! The feats of strength took place largely out in the open air, in a special courtyard demarcated for the purpose. This was next to the festival hall of the king, and it seemed that it was attached to a temporary palace that was set up specifically for the said festival. So, Tutmos now left the Ark Menu in order to complete his great feats. The most famous test of endurance was the king's ritual marathon. Tutmos, clad in nothing but a short kilt, was required to run for an extended period of time back and forth between a pair of markers. Maybe not for too long, but long enough that all assembled could witness his physical fitness and his strength in body. Now, to the best of our knowledge, Tutmos III was a fit man. His mummy, which reveals him at age 56 or so, indicates that apart from being bald later in life, he was still healthy and hale. Compare that with the mummy that might be Hatshepsut, an obese woman, and we could suggest that Tutmos was on the stays-in-shape end of the spectrum. So the run was probably not too difficult for him. Maybe he was a bit sweaty, a bit out of breath, but probably not too ruffled. The running of the course was completed in honour of and in the company of several different gods. Horus and Seth, either their statues or the priests dressed as them, stood at different places on the course. During his run, the king would pause before the god to perform an act of worship called the giving of life. Tutmos held up an ankh symbol, the symbol of life, to the lips of the statue or the priest, and he spoke a kind of offering incantation. Then he resumed his run. In the course of this run, the king ran to at least five different gods, to Seth, to Horus, to Amun, to Hathor, and to the feline goddess Bastet. These gods, two male, two female, and Amun, the all-encompassing, worked as protectors and champions of the king in various forms. By honouring these gods particularly, and giving them life, Tutmos renewed his own strength, and his own power. 
there is a strange additional element to this mini-marathon. According to the artwork, the king sometimes completed his run while carrying one of a variety of objects. In some scenes he carries a jug or a vessel, other times he might carry a bundle of staves, a flail or a boat oar for some reason, and even on occasion an ibis bird. We're not sure exactly of the reason for most of this, but it seems Tutmos had to run the course while carrying something. Perhaps he completed several circuits with a different item each time, it's hard to determine. With the run completed, the king now had to perform his second great physical test. This test was aimed at demonstrating the king's military skill. It was, in fact, an archery test. Tutmos took a bow and four arrows. Around him, the priests set up four wooden shields, one for the east, west, south and north. Tutmos, standing at the centre of these shields, took up his bow and his arrows. One after another, the king shot at the four targets. If he was skilled enough, he hit each on the first shot. Doing so, he proved his skills to the gods, and demonstrated to the gathered throng why it was he that led the armies of the two lands. Complementing this archery skill was another physical test that had something similar to do with victory over enemies. This one may be a bit surprising, because from the looks of it, it kind of looks like a baseball game. In what might be the earliest game of catch ever recorded, Tutmos III is depicted holding a bat. With this bat, he hits balls towards two priests, and also towards the goddess Hathor. The priests catch the balls that Tutmos strikes, and Hathor simply watches the whole affair. In other versions of this scene, we see different goddesses, Mut, Sakmet for example, mother goddesses essentially, figures conveying the symbolic power of the feminine. Tutmos, hitting balls towards the priests of these goddesses, is making some kind of offering to his mother. But what does this early form of catch actually mean? Like, what is going on here symbolically? Well, it seems as though Tutmos's little baseball game is connected with the archery test, and that both of these rituals are connected with the statues of the gods. Working backwards from later sources, Egyptologists suggest that the ball game and the archery test were done in the presence of divine images, and that these rituals were intended to prepare the area for the statues return to their shrines. In other words, at the end of a procession or a ceremony, the gods' statues had to be returned to their little sanctuaries. The arrow test and the ball game were symbolic acts to bring the area under the protection of the goddesses. Goddesses like Hathor, who could secure the sacred space and make it suitable for the statues to enter. Next up, the third test. Tutmos had completed a demonstration of fitness and a demonstration of warrior skill. The third test was designed to demonstrate his role as a farmer. Tutmos's third test was a cattle drive. That's right, he was required to take stick in hand and drive a herd of cattle before him successfully through the festival compound. This was called the kui, or driving, and it was a potent symbol for the king's place in nature and the economy. Bulls and cows were a powerful symbol for the royal household, the great house. With their power to trample, their placidity in peacetime, and their value as sources of food or milk, cattle were one of the country's most valuable resources. 
so of course they had a big role to play in the symbolism of the king. Tutmose took his stick in hand and the bulls and cows parted at his gesture. They followed his commands and moved forward obediently, all that muscle and meat obedient to the will of the king, to the government, to submitting itself to the rule of the pharaoh. This is a motif going all the way back to the earliest dynasties of the kingdom, when one of the most prominent jobs of the early kings was to assess the country's herds and manage them properly. Tutmos, doing this, was playing his part in an incredibly old tradition. One of the king's five royal names, after all, was Ka-Neket, or Mighty Bull. Symbolically, Tutmos was the Alpha Bull. Is, is that a thing? I, I don't know cattle raising. His command was the command of the whole country. These cattle, obedient to his gesture, followed his commands. There was a theological purpose to driving the cattle as well. As Tutmos drove the cattle forward, their hooves trampled the ground down. As they did so, they either drove seeds down into the soil and helped to plant crops, or they crushed worms beneath their feet, symbolically destroying the Egyptians' enemies. Finally, in a third element, the cattle were supposedly passing over the hidden burial place of Osiris, and their stamping feet would hide the tomb beneath layers of smooth pressed mud. The exact symbolism of the cattle drive is debated, and I haven't found a decisive answer on the subject. What we do know is that the ritual played on most of the major elements of Egyptian society – agriculture, physical power, and care for the gods. As far as symbolic acts go, this was a big one. With the cattle drive completed, the king had completed his three great physical tests. He had proven military strength, physical fitness, and pastoral skill. Around these rituals there were other minor side duties, but I'll save those for a later episode. For now, let's bring these said festival rituals towards their climax. The said festival ended with the king enthroned, wearing the crown of Upper and Lower Egypt combined. This was the symbol of the union, the reunification of the country in the person of the ruler. It was a memorial as old as the kingdom itself. As Tutmos sat down upon his throne, he was the newest incarnation of a line going back 1,500 years. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt sat in a throne on a pavilion. Over him, a canopy shaded him from the sun. Before him, the priests of Amun-Ra, of Horus, of Seth, Hathor, Thoth, Seshat, Mut, Konsu, Bastet, Sobek, Harpi, and dozens more gave praise to the newly restored ruler of the land. Life, prosperity, and health, men Kepare Tutmose III, may he celebrate millions of jubilees. Tutmos III was now approximately 32 years old, and he had reached his 30th year on the throne. It was unusual by Egyptian standards for one so young to be celebrating a said festival already, but Tutmos III was a pious ruler and he obeyed the conventions. Conventionally, the said festival would be held for a king who was at least in his mid-forties, 
and it was designed basically around the idea of proving that a ruler was still strong enough to commune with the gods and maintain order throughout the cosmos. In other words, it was a ritual designed to prove that the king was still deserving of being the king. Tutmos III was still young and vigorous, and clearly still had the energy to rule Egypt. But as he was a loyal follower of tradition, and not one to break with established practice, his Zed festival began in the proper year and at the proper time. Tutmos III's Zed festival was held on the first day of the planting season, Peret, which would be in our December. This was the start of the fifth month of the year, and it was an auspicious time. Kings usually held their official coronations at the start of one of the three seasons, planting, harvest, or flood. It was most auspicious theologically to begin at the start of flood, but you went with what was available. For Tutmos, the date of his coronation was approximately December, we think, and so this is when his said festival was inaugurated. The fact that said festivals have such a regular pattern, one after the first 30 years and then one every three to four years thereafter, makes them incredibly valuable for dating and arranging the chronology of different kings. Without said festivals, there's a good chance that many kings would have large gaps in the middle of their reigns, without which we didn't have much to go on. But because different courtiers who participated in the said festival made references to them in their tombs, the said festivals provide anchor points around which we can base a whole bunch of other history. This makes said festivals a wonderful historical resource, and every time they show up, we are thankful. So there we have it, the elaborate, complicated, and meticulous process by which a young man named Menkepere Tutmos III celebrated 30 years on the throne. I wonder if he found these events surreal at all. At the age of 32 or thereabouts, this was a man that had scarcely started to talk before he was anointed as King of the Nile, and then some. His entire life had been dominated by the worldview he was now performing and renewing. What did Tutmos think of all this? I suppose we'll never know, but it's tempting to speculate, isn't it? Was he proud, nervous? Did he believe wholeheartedly in the truth of what he was doing? Or did he simply get on through it, performing the necessary actions, without really engaging them mentally? We have all kinds of suggestions that Tutmos was a very pious ruler, but the difference between a public image and private feelings is vast, especially in the realm of pharaonic affairs. There is simply so much missing, and while we can unpack the major events and the appearance, and even the symbolisms of the said festival, there is still a lot that is left mysterious. The said festival is in fact one of those incidents that, if I had a time machine, I would quite like to observe. Saying I only had three options to observe from the ancient world, an Egyptian said festival would be one of those three without a doubt. I want to know, what did it look like? Was it as grand a celebration as the artwork suggests? Was it as pious and rigid as the texts imply? Was it private and secluded, or did many people see it? This is something that is desperately curious to me. What was the said festival truly like? It's a question I ask myself regularly while researching these kind of rulers. What was going on in their heads when they went through these kind of jubilees? 
Obviously they must have been proud and satisfied to have ruled so long, apparently with the approval of the great gods whom they worshipped so regularly. But what happened during these things? Was Tutmos III tired when he did these? Or was he enthusiastic and energized? Did he believe this? Was he filled with the fire of inspiration? I like to think maybe he really was. Coming up on the History of Egypt podcast, we take a break from all of these royal narratives and meet some people living and working in the state of Egypt during the time of Thutmose III. Join us soon for episode 72, The Home Front. All that and more coming up. Also, a quick note. Thank you to all of you who wrote into the show over the holiday with suggestions and requests for content in 2017. I'll do my best to meet each and every request as best as I can. If you have questions, comments, or criticisms, visit us on our website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com, or you can email us at egyptpodcast at gmail.com. That's egyptpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. This will help bring the podcast to more people, to increase its visibility, and to ensure that new listeners find the content that they're looking for. You can also rate us on sites like Podbay and Player FM, or anywhere you get your podcasts. But if you do, I'm eternally grateful. Thank you so much. See you soon.